0: Our books, and today I'm joined by John Tamney, author of the new book, Who Needs the Fed? What Taylor Swift, Uber, and Robots Tell Us About Money, Credit, and Why We Should Abolish America's Central Bank. John is political economy editor at Forbes, editor of Real Clear Markets, a senior economic advisor to Toriador Research and Trading, and a senior economic fellow at Reason Foundation. He's also a weekly panelist on the Forbes on Fox program. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Ben, thanks for having me on. John, I always think it's useful in these sorts of discussions of arcane topics like money and credit to start by defining our terms. So let's start right there. Define money and credit for us.
1: Well, money is just a measure. Money is not wealth. If we burned up every dollar in the world today, the U.S. would still be the richest country in the world tomorrow. All money is, is a measure. It's like a ruler. It's what allows us to exchange what we have for what we don't have. I've got wine. I want your bread, but you don't want my bread. You want the butcher's meat. Money allows me to get your bread and then allows you to get the meat from the butcher. It's just, it's how we move, how we invest with one another and also how we trade with each other. Nothing more.
0: Credit is effectively, as you describe it, something that is both tangible and intangible. It's sort of you know it when you see it, but there's also a substantive element to it.
1: Absolutely. Credit is real economic resources. Um, If credit were money, then Haiti and Honduras would have every bit as much credit flowing through their economy as we do in the U.S., and counterfeiting would be encouraged. It would be a legal concept. But credit's what we produce. It's trucks, tractors, uh, computers, desks, chairs. Most of all, it's labor. It's us. Um, when, when, when Bill Gates, he could give up every cent of his wealth uh, today, but he could uh, tomorrow he could walk into any bank or venture capitalist in the world and attract billions of dollars in credit because Bill Gates has a track record. Credit is what we create. The government cannot bestow it or give it to us. It can only distort where it would naturally go.
0: What does Uber tell us about credit and the Fed's role in credit?
1: Well, Uber is interesting because it's just this little app that I say has exposed the 20,000 plus economists at the Fed as, as uh, uh, totally lacking clothes. What is Uber's resource? It is cars with drivers that take us from point A to point B. And so Uber's big innovation is that, is that they realize the only way they can please their customers, the only way they can, is by pleasing the drivers first. And so Uber institutes surge pricing, and what that means is that when it's snowing or raining or after a Taylor Swift concert, when there's lots of people searching for a way home, Uber's cars are always plentiful simply because Uber allows the price of its resource, the car and driver, to float up to a price that brings them onto the road so that they're there when we need them. Now contrasts that with the Federal Reserve. When the economy's in trouble, what does the Fed do? It lowers the price of the interest rate that it sets, its version of, of the price of credit, to zero. It basically says to the savers, who are essential so that we can borrow. Someone's got to save so we can borrow. It says to the savers, you don't matter. Well, that's like Uber telling its drivers, you know what? You don't really matter. We're going to always offer, we're never going to offer surge pricing. And the result would be that Uber's drivers wouldn't be on the road when we need them.
0: So how does the market sort of shrug off the fact that you have a Fed, which plays central planner and tries to set the price of something so critical as money, of of money? Well,
1: the market shrugs off the Fed simply, and and thank goodness it does. And that's the point of my book. It's a very optimistic one. Uh, Brian Grazer, as an example, is the most, one of the most successful movie producers in the history of Hollywood. We're thinking Splash, Parenthood, A Beautiful Mind, Apollo 13, television shows like uh, Arrested Development and, and um, 24. But as Grazer freely admits, that despite his track record, he's turned down for credit 90% of the time when he wants to pursue a project. In Silicon Valley, people say, oh, credit's really easy there, but as evidenced by all the billionaire venture capitalists out there, credit's very expensive. If you want to start up a technology business, you're going to give up a big portion of it to venture capitalists, and you're going to give up even more in stock options to potential employees. Um, Donald Trump hasn't been able to get credit from U.S. banks since the 1990s just because he's had a very bad track record of paying back uh, money borrowed. And so what that tells us is that the Fed's over here decreeing easy access to the economy's resources, but in the real economy, the price of credit floats up and down to reflect the individual and the individual company, and that's very healthy. If the Fed were the source of if, – if the Fed were actually allocating the, the, the economy's credit, we'd be a very poor country.
0: Yeah, and, and since you mentioned Donald Trump, one of the questions I was going to have for you was you compare and contrast basically the credit worthiness, basically that is the ability for two people, Michael Milken from the financial services industry and Donald Trump in real estate and marketing, basically, and show that the cost of obtaining resources varies and is commensurate with the risk associated with the people to whom are being lent those resources. So compare and contrast Michael Milken and Donald Trump for us.
1: Oh, it's a great question. Well, so the, the chapter in my book about Donald Trump talks about how in 1990, now keep in mind for the listeners, in the 1980s, that's when Trump hit his height as a real estate mogul. But as early as 1990, he was already viewed as a major credit risk by banks. And so I talk about how he goes to Los Angeles to Security Pacific Bank, which was then the fifth largest U.S. bank. He wanted to borrow $50 million to revitalize the Ambassador Hotel out there. Um, As you can imagine, he came to the meeting with a list of amazing assets that he said were highly liquid. And that's why he was good for the loan. But the bankers quite simply did not believe him. And so they loaned him $10 million just because they wanted to be associated with his celebrity. But two years later, they wrote down the loan in total. Now, contrast that with Michael Milken. Milken's such an important figure when you think about it because he's a reminder that the Fed wants to decree easy credit, but in the real economy, it's very expensive. Milken's genius was he realized there were all these great businesses out there that were were basically getting the door slammed in their face by banks. They could not access bank credit. And so Milken's innovation was the high-yield bond. He told investors, you can you can buy the bonds of these non-blue chip companies and precisely because they don't have the credit of, say, an IBM, you can loan them money at a fairly expensive rate. But this was great for the companies because Milken made it possible for these companies to get access to credit that previously had not been available to them. Milken, because he was so good at it, he could literally close a deal by saying, by writing a highly confident letter, as in, I will get the money raised to do this deal, don't worry about it, and Milken himself was the credit. He was so good at raising money to fund the companies of of the future that investors backed him every time.
0: One of the great things about your book is that it is provocative in challenging the conventional wisdom of all manner of economic thinkers. So you laud the supply siders for basically encouraging the conditions that permit economic growth and the abundance of resources and creativity and entrepreneurship, but you challenge supply siders who argue that lower taxes mean greater revenues, quote unquote. I'm putting them them in squ- scare quotes right now for government as a bad thing. I- explain why greater government revenues as a result of lower taxes is bad.
1: It's bad simply because when politicians get more in the way of revenues, they spend them. And so you've got to con- consider the multiplicative effect of that. Once government starts a program, the cost of it grows and grows year after year. Because in government, you're rewarded for the, the, the bigger you are and the more people you hire. That, contrast that with the private sector, you're rewarded for doing more with less. And supply-siders have correctly pointed out over the years that when you reduce the price that is taxation, you get more economic activity, and as a result, government revenues soar. I'm not questioning their point there. What I'm questioning is that historically they've said, okay, to, to basically big government types, you give us our tax cuts, we'll give you revenues in return. But the obvious problem, and, and the way I describe it in the book, is, a, is, a, is a, a program like Medicare. Medicare was funded at the tune of $3 billion in 1965 precisely because of the Kennedy-Johnson tax cuts of 1964. It showered the Treasury with a lot of revenues. They had money to spend. Medicare by 2020 will cost over $1 trillion a year. And so when supply-siders pursue tax cuts meant to give the federal government more money, they're actually neutering the genius of the tax cuts because government grows and grows and and government spending itself is a tax on growth. And so my argument is supply siders focus should be on reducing taxation so much that revenues actually decline. That should be their goal because when governments grow, that's a tax like any other.
0: In, In other words, starve the beast and make sure that basically people keep so much of their money that government cannot take it from them and grow bigger.
1: Absolutely. Let's remember, in the private sector, we're venture buyers, and so we tell the markets what we want. In the private sector, um, we're better allocators of the economy's resources. We are. Warren Buffett is. uh, Paul Tudor Jones, we're much better allocators of the economy's resources simply because we kill off bad ideas, Government doesn't kill its darlings, and so when it's handed lots of revenues, programs, whether or not they work, grow and grow. Medicare still doesn't insure all of the elderly but it's more and more expensive which means politicians are out, will be allocating a trillion dollars a year to medicare think of what that money those funds would have meant to the private sector in terms of cancer cures uh, technological innovations transportation innovations that would render the, the typical jet kind of dated by comparison we have to consider the unseen when government gets a lot of our revenues
0: right we have a we have a profit motive private way the government's motive is to buy votes basically in some now you argue in, in the book. You say that you want to relegate the Laffer Curve to the dustbin of history. Explain that.
1: Well, and I think Arthur Laffer would agree with my point. The Laffer Curve always made the very correct assertion that uh, that you don't when you raise taxes, you don't necessarily raise revenues, and so and so the Laffer Curve said sometimes you can bring the tax rate down to a level. That will drive so much economic growth that federal revenues will actually increase. Well, that's been the problem. The U.S. economy has grown a great deal over the last 30 years. That's a great thing. But what hasn't been good is the revenue growth, this Laffer curve concept. The more the economy grows, the more the feds have We need to get rid of the Laffer curve and focus on how do we reduce the price that is taxed so much that revenues actually decline, because only then will we see the true genius of tax cuts.
0: You argue that OPEC does not affect oil prices, which flies in the face of all the conventional wisdom that we hear about, and oil is such a seminal price when it comes to looking at at indicators, what is the relationship between oil and the dollar, and why is OPEC irrelevant in determining the cost of the dollar of, – of oil, rather?
1: Well, the, the relationship is just about everything. Um, uh, OPEC was formed in 1960, but notice how there were no oil spikes in the 1960s, yet there were in the 1970s. What was the difference the only difference was in the 1970s, the U.S. Treasury severely devalued the dollar. In this case, we left, the, the, we untied the dollar's link to gold. The dollar went into free fall, and commodities across the board soared. It wasn't an oil thing. All commodities rose. Um, look at the '80s and '90s. Um, did OPEC suddenly become generous in, in those years, Did it suddenly decide, "Oh, we just want to give it all give all our profits back and, and lower the price of oil to 10? Please, no. What happened in the '80s and '90s is Presidents Clinton and Reagan were big. Were, their treasuries were very much focused on focused on protecting the dollar, and as a result, the dollar's price, the oil is priced in dollars. The stronger dollar drove down the price. In the 2000s, it's not as though OPEC became greedy again. No, we devalued the dollar again and the price of oil soared. OPEC has very little to do with the price of oil. It's a dollar phenomenon. It always has been. We've never had a shortage of oil, and it it frustrates me that our side would discredit the oil producers and the oil entrepreneurs by saying they're not good at at, uh, keeping track of supply and demand.
0: Since, Since you talk about the dollar... Let's talk about what makes a a strong dollar versus a weak dollar and and devaluation, as you just mentioned. Many will point to the fact that the Fed has inflated the money supply significantly since it began in 1913 and that the dollar has lost 90% of its value. You argue that while there is a correlation between the dollar losing value and the Fed printing more money, there's actually not causation there. So explain how the dollar loses its value and what's what's required for there to be a strong dollar, quote-unquote.
1: Well, I think the best way to look at this is to, is to remember when we produce, we're producing for dollars. Now, we're really producing for all the things that dollars can be exchanged for. And so what that should tell us is a well-managed currency, a currency that's holding its value, is going to be heavily in supply, which runs contrary to the popular view. The Argentine peso has been devalued massively since the 1950s. Well, that's not a very well-supplied currency. It's currencies that hold their value, like the Swiss franc, that are the most supplied. And so, if there's a correlation between money supply and the value of a currency, it's that the str- the stronger ones tend to be the ones that are much more heavily supplied around the world. Think the Swiss franc most notably, but also the dollar a lot of the time. And so it's no surprise that throughout much of the the 20th century with the dollar at least half of that time having a gold definition, that it, it would have been heavily supplied. The Fed had nothing to do with that, really. Um, My take in the book is that basically presidents get the dollar they want. Um, FDR wanted to devalue the dollar in 1933. He devalued it from 1 20th of an ounce of gold to 1 35th of an ounce of gold. Fed Chairman Eugene Meyer resigned over it. The Fed had nothing to do with that devaluation. The next devaluation was President Nixon's in 1971. Fed Chairman Arthur Burns begged the Nixon administration not to do this and was once again ignored. Uh, Ronald Reagan wanted a strong dollar. So did Bill Clinton. Markets complied. George W. Bush wanted a weak dollar. Markets complied. It's really more of a presidential thing in that markets give the president what they want.
0: So in a world of fiat money where, like you said, in the 70s under Nixon, we completely untethered the dollar from gold as it had been defined, how does a how does a president will a stronger or weaker dollar? In other words, does a president have any effect in terms of telling uh, the Fed that he wants to ease credit, and thus you have more dollars pumped into the system, chasing less goods, and you have an inflationary policy in terms of price? You sort of challenge that. So, how does a how does a president will a stronger weak dollar?
1: Yeah, you you ask a great question, and and, and It's hard to know why, but it just does happen. And I think the reason for it is, is as you allude, contrary to what people say, the Fed is not, uh, what's the word, it's not politically independent. Uh, Neither is the U.S. Treasury. And so when the president speaks, basically what you're saying is the president could say to the Fed tomorrow, helicopter trillions of dollars out of airplanes and drop them around the United States. I mean, the U.S. Treasury also has an exchange stabilization fund, about $50 billion that it can enter the marketplace and bid up or bid down the dollar. And so that's mainly what's what's at work. You're not going to fight the president who has basically control over the U.S. monetary authorities because they could enter the market and do all manner of things. They could just, basically, the U.S. Treasury tomorrow, could, or the President could say, the dollar is now worth this. Who is going to fight the President on that? The dollar is now worth one three-thousandth of an ounce of gold. Is Argentina or Mexico going to come in and fight that? No. And so the President gets the dollar he or she wants.
0: So that basically makes the case exactly for why you need a gold standard or for the market to determine what money should be so that a president cannot meddle with the value of the currency in which all manner of resources are traded.
1: Oh, yeah. You hit on all the important things, and that's the—that's a great way of looking at it. Let's face it. The gold standard didn't come out of nowhere It came about because producers wanted a measure that they could use, money, to exchange the goods they were creating. That The sole purpose of money, this is per Adam Smith, is to circulate consumable goods. I would add to it, it's the way that we invest with one another. And so Treasury tomorrow could announce that, let's just say, the dollar is is exchangeable at one one one-thousandth of an ounce of gold, and markets would correct that. What I make, I don't spend a lot of time on it in the book, but I go exactly to the point that you hit on, is that, you know, we get shoes, socks, and T-shirts. The markets produce those for us at all sorts of shapes, sizes, price points, you name it. Why couldn't they create money for us, too? Would anyone reject getting paid an Amex, Visa, or Discover dollars? Would anyone reject JP Morgan dollars? Now, the cool thing about, about actual private industry creating the money that we earn is that they couldn't devalue it with great regularity as the US Treasury does. If JP Morgan suddenly devalues the dollars we're earning, we're going to go to some some other business that will offer up better, more credible money. And theoretically JP Morgan or Amex would define the dollars they create in terms of gold. They would say, this dollar is going to be as good as gold year after year after year. Wouldn't that be better than government that that can devalue its way out of its debts anytime it wants just by saying the dollar is worth less?
0: Now, in practical terms, you basically, in effect, challenge the Austrian theory of the business cycle in your book. You dispute the idea that artificially low interest rates versus the quote-unquote natural rate of interest caused the 2008 financial crisis. I- explain that.
1: Well, of, of course it didn't. Um, the, the view there is that is that the Fed's low rate of interest, the Fed funds rate that it set, made credit easy. Well, that's like saying that uh, Mayor de Blasio in New York can make apartments cheap by, de- by decreeing them $100 a month. Well, there'd be lots of demand for apartments but very little supply. Credit is just real economic resources. How illogical to presume that just because the Fed decrees access to resources cheap, that those who have access to it would comply. So that's the first thing. It's based on a flawed theory of, 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 of price controls. Price controls generally don't work. But let's remember what, uh, several things. In the 1970s, the Fed was actively jacking up rates, but there was a major housing boom in the 1970s in both the U.S. and England. The Austrians have never explained why that occurred despite the fact that the Fed was increasing rates. The Austrians never also explained why housing boomed globally in the 2000s, even though the Fed was the only central bank actively pushing down the Fed funds rate. Austrians have never explained why... um, why housing boomed in Canada where it's very difficult to get a home loan, in England where, where they got rid of the mortgage deduction in the 1980s. And, so, and they've also never explained why if suddenly credit were cheap, people would use it to consume houses. Most people would say, oh, if I can get access to the economy's resources, I'm going to start a business. I'm going to, there's all sorts of things you can do with credit. So none of these things were answered, but the main thing is, is housing boomed globally. So how do we blame the Fed in the United States? And so I, of course, point to currencies. The Bush administration wanted a weak dollar and markets complied. If you look throughout history, when the currencies devalued, There is, per Ludwig von Mises, one of the great Austrian greats, there is a rush into real assets, into tangible assets least vulnerable to the devaluation of the currency. Basically, housing is a hedge against currency devaluation. That's why it boomed in the 1970s when we devalued the dollar. That's why it boomed in Germany after World War I when they totally destroyed the mark. When a currency is weak there's a rush into housing everywhere. And that's why the housing boom was global. When we devalue in the United States, it's a global event. So this runs runs against everything that the Austrians believe. And, you know, I'm a big fan of the Austrians, but I think they got this incorrect.
0: Similarly, you challenge the idea that quantitative easing, basically, sim- the simplified description is printing money out of thin air, uh, d- is not the reason that Financial asset prices have all risen in the post-crisis world. I- explain that.
1: Oh yeah, that's okay. For what was quantitative easing? It was the Fed borrowing four trillion from banks. There was no money printing. Is the Fed borrowing four trillion and buying up U.S. Treasuries to keep an interest rate down, and also doubling down in mortgages? So think about that. The the Fed subsidized government spending, and then doubled down on the very rush into housing that got us into trouble in the first place. So let's dismiss right now this notion that this was stimulant for the economy. Obviously it wasn't. So we then have to believe that the most sophisticated deepest stock markets in the world, those in the United States, somehow fell for something that was so plainly inimical to economic growth. We then have to answer the question, If quantitative easing in the United States caused a stock market boom, where was the one in Japan? Because they've tried it 11 times since early 1990s with no corresponding stock market rally. Now, the argument is that, okay, well, the Fed in keeping its rate at, at zero caused individuals to rush into higher yielding assets in the stock market. People who make that comment can can never explain why it was that treasury prices and corporate bonds never corrected to reflect the rush out of low-yielding treasuries and corporate bonds. They then say, okay, well, the creation of $4 trillion had to find its way into something, and it found its way into the stock market. Okay, well, if that's true, for a QE-infused buyer, to express that bullish optimism, by definition, a QE skeptic seller must express an equal amount of pessimism. In, in the stock market, the, the passions of the bulls are always and everywhere equaled out by the skepticism of bears. And so this idea that $4 trillion just rushed into the stock market ignores that $4 trillion rushed out at the same time. But if if people, and let's add to this, markets never price in the present. They always price in the future. QE was telegraphed to to be ending in 2014. People knew it was going to end long before that. If, in fact, it had been propping up stock prices, we would have seen the markets correct well before 2014. And then, of course, if people just disagree with everything I've just said, if they truly believe the Fed was able to trick the smartest investors in the world into a stock market rally, What they're very explicitly saying is that the Fed robbed us of a much bigger stock market rally. And how we know that is simple. Recessions are a sign of an economy cleansing itself. When you allow the recession to occur, that signals the boom on the way. Well, a stock market uh, correction is no different. All that is is investors starving lousy businesses of, of capital so that they can redirect it to good ones. And so if, in fact, the Fed propped up the stock market and caused it to rally, What it did was prop up lousy companies at the expense of much better ones. Hence, and very logically, the Fed, if it did what people incorrectly say it did, robbed us of what would have been a much bigger stock market rally.
0: Although the price of gold in dollars has shifted since your book was published, as you know it, you say that the dollar has soared versus gold since August 2011. Given that fact... Would you say that Barack Obama is actually a strong dollar president?
1: I would say, I wouldn't go that far, but I would say that Barack Obama did something that the Bush administration did not do. It got fairly quiet about China. And it, a little rec- history is required here. Going, going back, actually, to the Reagan years, the Reagan Treasury was re- regularly bashing Japan about its imports to the United States, even though those were good things. Um, this signaled to the markets that the Reagan wanted a weaker dollar, and markets complied to a degree at times. During the Clinton years... Not once, once Robert Rubin got to Treasury, did a responsible Treasury official ever jawbone the Japanese about the value of the yen. This signaled to the markets that the Clinton administration wanted a strong dollar and markets complied. This was very good for the economy. And so Barack Obama, his Treasury has been largely quiet about China. China is the Japan of today since 2011. And I think that's shown up in a stronger dollar. Um, and, and that's a very good thing. I wouldn't say he's a strong dollar president. I don't think Bill Clinton was either. Reagan was the only one. But when your treasury is quiet, it does to have it does to tend to have a salutary effect on the dollar. Now, in my perfect world, the dollar would never change in value. But Obama should be given credit. The dollar strengthened quite a bit since 2011.
0: Lastly, you, you end your book on a very optimistic note discussing the fruits of Basically, the automation of everything in our economy and robotics more broadly. And I think all of our listeners are not Luddites. They all understand, I'm sure, very well that it's great that we're not still driving horse-drawn carriages and typing on old typewriters. That said, you have all of these articles out there talking about how something like 50% of today's jobs are going to be destroyed and there's a fear, I assume, that people won't be able to be trained in new skills to adapt to this new economy. What do you say to those people?
1: Uh, rejoice that 25 to 50% of today's jobs are going to be destroyed. That signals immense progress in wealth. Think about 100 years ago. Do the jobs of 100 years ago at all resemble the work we do today? Thank goodness they don't. Many Americans back then worked on farms or were forced to work in factories. It is the destruction of jobs, think the computer, the Internet, the ATM, the car, that leads to economic progress. And so that's the first good news. If, if most of the work we do today is not around 50 years from now, we'll know that we've really evolved into an even wealthier society. Now, where do robots come into this? Robots will save us from a lot of the work that we don't want to do. What the other thing robots will do is, in terms of factories and things like that, is they can work seven days a week and they'll never call in sick 24 hours a day. What does this mean for all of us? Well, let's think about what entrepreneurs are seeking when they want to start a business. They're seeking dollars, but what they're really seeking is credit. They're, see- they're seeking access to trucks, tractors, computers, um, desks, chairs, buildings, you name it. Robots promise resource abundance unlike we've ever seen. And so the cost to an entrepreneur of starting a new business promises to drop, go into free fall, thanks to entrepreneurs, which means more and more enterprising individuals will get to animate their ideas and create all sorts of businesses that we never imagined. I'm in the internet business largely today, so are you. Twenty years ago, could we have predicted it? The internet was one of the biggest job destroyers in history. These advances just change the nature of our work, and robots will promise abundance for entrepreneurs to truly change how we live. We, we live exceedingly well today. What's ahead is going to be staggeringly great.
0: What will be interesting to see is if progressives who are in tow with big labor actually try to put forth regulations that stop that creative destruction from happening. Do you have any sense as to what will happen there?
1: I think it's going to be very hard for them to do. You ask such great questions, and and I think what we're going to see is that technology is quite simply too fast for regulators and for politicians. Think about what Uber's meant. This little app has exposed the regulatory cartels of cities and states around the country as utterly worthless. And I think we're going to see more and more of that, of technology just outrunning these guys. It will move so fast that they can't keep track, at which point people will come to love these advances, kind of the way people protest now if cities take away Uber from them.
0: The name of the book is Who Needs the Fed? And we've been speaking with its author, John Tamney. John, thanks so much for the interview. Thank you, Ben. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.